Guys, that was my wife, Josie. Can we give it up for Josie? She did a great job. Another highlight for us this morning is one of our students, Blessed, led us in worship. She's so good, so good. Well, hey, if, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Tony. I'm one of our college pastors here. I lead the Salt Company in the city of St. Paul, and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I uh, just want to reiterate what Drew said. Shout out to all the redemption dads. I am not one, but I have a dad joke, okay? I have a dad joke. I think you're going to like it. You might not get it, and if you don't, pretend like you get it. Okay, here's the dad joke. What did they say about Boaz before he got married? They said he was ruthless. <laughs> All right, that, that hit about 20% of the crowd, but I promise it's a good joke if you look into it. It's a great time. Great time. Thank you. All right. Well, good to be with you guys. If you're new here to Redemption Church, you might be wondering, do they only do jokes and shout-outs? No, we teach the Bible. So you can take out your Bible. We'll be in Psalm 38 this morning. Psalm 38 is where we're going to be camping out. And we're going to be looking at a psalm that's called a psalm of lament. It's a psalm written by David in a season of his life of suffering where he's looking back and repenting of his sin and lamenting over his current condition couple important things to recognize as we enter into our time together. This psalm hits on some pretty complex theological issues. Issues like why does God allow suffering and how does he use it and the discipline of God in suffering. It's not exactly your feel-good sermon, but I do promise it ends on a high note, okay? But until then, it's just pew. Anyways, that's what it's going to be like. But one of the most interesting things about the psalm is, is not just what David is going through or why David is going through that, but how he chooses to process the suffering that he's in. As I was thinking about kind of our culture, the primary way our culture decides how to process our own suffering is through the lens of victim and oppressor. It's this idea that if you're going through suffering, it's because you're ultimately a victim and everything around you is conspiring against you. This is where the idea of intersectionality is born. That the more disadvantages you have, the more oppressors you have in your life, the more of a victim you are. And maybe for a lot of us in this room who have been indoctrinated in our culture, this is the primary way we view our suffering, through the lens of a victim. I, I personally experienced this. I remember growing up and as I was coming to age, all I kept hearing from the culture around me was this idea of victim and oppressor and intersectionality. And I was taught growing up, minority and majority space, abusive father, growing up in poverty, all these different things intersected together to ultimately make my mentality as a victim and therefore make my identity as a victim. But here's the problem with our culture's processing of our suffering. If you live as a victim, you ironically become less powerful, not more. You become someone who basically believes that the hope that you have as an individual for your life to quote unquote get better is in the power structures and people of the round world around you. You're putting your faith in the hope that the people who hurt you will eventually repent and be reformed. What it will lead to is a powerless life. David in this psalm does something a little bit unique and in an unconventional, unpopular and uncomfortable way he invites us into a new way of processing our suffering, not as victims, but as victors in Christ. Okay, open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 38. That's where we're going to be. Three things we need to know. Three things we need to know. If we want to be victors and not victims, we must be aware of God's discipline. We must take ownership of our sin. 
and we must have hope. First two ones are dark. Third one is very light. You're going to love it. Okay. All right. Let's start in verse 1. We must be aware of God's discipline. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. Okay, the first two verses of this psalm are really, really important because they highlight the condition of David. Here's how David is feeling. He senses the rebuke and discipline of God. He feels the pressure of God's displeasure in response to his sin and broken condition. Spurgeon commentates on this verse and says, The anger of others I can bear, but not thine. As thy love is most sweet to my heart, thy displeasure is most cutting to my conscience. This is the condition that David is in, a weighty condition, a hurting heart condition. As what we'll learn throughout the rest of Psalm 38 is that this is a condition of suffering. But here's the beauty of this text. David processes the suffering in a really unique way. He doesn't say, I'm suffering, so I run away, or I'm suffering, and it's meaningless. But he actually claims that this suffering is a discipline of God. Okay, I'm going to introduce a perhaps a new theological construct for many of us in this room today, or maybe a less thought of theological construct on a way to understand our suffering. And that is that God uses our suffering to discipline us and train us. I want to slow down here and be a little bit tactful with this. Like I said, this is going to be a really uncomfortable sermon. It just is. I think a lot of us have grown up with some level of gospel fluency on suffering that goes something like this. I am suffering. I am in a situation that's incredibly painful. And the way that we apply God's love to that is to say, Jesus was a suffering Savior who is with me in the valley of the shadow of death, which is absolutely true. It is beautiful and it is a lens of empathy. What I want to introduce in this psalm is another lens on how to view your suffering that I believe could even be more transformative for us, and that is the lens of discipline. This idea that God would use the suffering of our lives not just to be with us in the suffering, but to actually transform us to look more like him. Keller says, a trial can be God's discipline if it requires patience, faith, and obedience, and helps us grow. Okay. It gets more intense. <laughs> I know. Just keep intense. If you read between the lines of Psalm 38, verses 1 through 2, here's what you find that David is processing. He's not processing passive suffering. So what I mean by that is he's not just processing suffering that's happening out there, like a natural disaster or something that happened in the culture around him. He's actually processing this active suffering. And so he takes his claim even further that he is suffering at the hands of God. The way he describes his suffering is your arrows are piercing me. Your hand is weighing upon me. And so his processing is this that God is enacting suffering in his life in order to discipline him. Okay. What we need right now is to ask a twofold question, right? The first one is, why? Why would God send suffering in this way to David and to us? And the second thing is, what do we need to learn from this theological concept? Answer to question number one, he disciplines us because we're his kids. Okay, look with me to Hebrews 12. I'm going to have it on the screens. Hebrews 12, 6 through 7 and verse 11 says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Fast forward five verses and it says this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, here's a lens on how to view suffering that might be uncomfortable for many of us. What if suffering is the means by God, you, the means by which a heavenly Father in heaven who knows better what we need than what we want is using in order to train us? Redemption Church, we are running a race, are we not? We are aiming to spend the rest of our lives running towards Jesus and living a life that honors him. But what is a marathon runner but someone who consistently endures suffering unto that end? What if our Father in heaven would prefer for us not to have lives, lives embodied? No, that's the wrong word. Let me rethink that. What if our Father would rather have us live lives of suffering that leads to righteousness than lives of ease and comfort that leads to apathy. I think the fear for us in this room of our church is not that we would suffer so much that we would walk away from Jesus. I think the fear for many of us in this room should be that we would live such comfortable, easy lives that our lives would just slowly seep into a place of apathy. And our Father cares far more about our development and discipleship and who we become in Christ-likeness and the comfort level of our daily experience. So maybe God, in his grace and his kindness and his goodness to us, is disciplining us so that we would live lives not captured by apathy, but by righteousness. Okay, second thing is, what do we need to learn? What do we need to learn from this gospel new category is we need to create a new category of gospel fluency around suffering. And I want you to understand this is pivotal for us to step into the identity of a victor and not a victim. And here's why. A victim sees suffering as something happening to them with no purpose or design. This is the universe, right? If you guys talk to people, it's like, oh my gosh, the universe is conspiring against me. No, it's not. The universe does not have a personality. It doesn't have a design or a vision for your life, okay? It just doesn't. It doesn't. But a victor in Christ sees that suffering is given by God to discipline them and train them. To see that God has a vision for who we become, a victim sees suffering as something to get out from underneath, a victor sees suffering as formational. In the upside down kingdom of God, suffering and discipline leads to greater development and greater joy. In our culture, when you're suffering, the only application is get out of it as quickly as possible. Figure out any means by which you can get out from underneath the weight of the suffering. But in the kingdom of God, we have a greater vision than getting out of our suffering. And it's actually to grow in our suffering. What Christ wants for us is more than just suffering avoidance. What he wants for us is a deep development in him. Okay, so what's the application of this point? The application is more and more we need to be asking the question, what is God doing in me in the midst of my suffering? Not just trying to get out of it as quickly as possible, not to skate by our scuffering as quickly as possible, but to ask the question, what if God is disciplining and training me unto a future race or a current race that I'm running, and how can I see suffering as formational? One of my friends in the network, his name is Mark, often says, sleepy paths, easy paths make sleepy Christians. So what if our goal was not to have an easy path that made us sleepy, but a hard path that made us righteous. 
That's what I think this verse is talking about. Okay, so that's part one. If we want to be victors, we need to see and be aware of the discipline of God, but we actually need to be more than just aware. We need to take action. So look at me at part two. We must take ownership of our sin. Verse three says this. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. All right, so it gets worse and then it gets better, okay? I promise that bell curve is happening. It's going to be a good time. Here is verse 3, part B. This is the hinge point of this psalm. This is where it goes from, okay, slightly uncomfortable theological framework to kind of offensive. What David is re realizing here is that his suffering is not just discipline from God, but it's actually caused by his sin. He's processing his suffering in this way. I am suffering because God is disciplining me, but he's disciplining me because of my sin. Here's what he says. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. My wounds are festering because of my foolishness. David understands this crystal clear that in this circumstance, he is suffering because of his sin. Okay, I want to pause here and do a little bit of theological work in order to better understand this text. This is really important. It's going to be a little bit nerdy, but stay with me for like five minutes, okay? I think one of the ways that you understand theology well and you need to be balanced is to understand two different ways to read your Bible. Okay, way number one is called systematic theology. Systematic theology, which is great. We love systematic theology. This is the idea that you read each verse or passage in light of the grand narrative of Scripture. Here's why that's so important. Imagine you only had Psalm 38, okay? You open up your Bible, it's blank pages except Psalm 38. And here's what Psalm 38 says, that you're suffering because of your sin. You might conclude that is the only way that God uses suffering in our lives. Good thing we don't have just Psalm 38, okay? We have the whole narrative of Scripture. So let's think about it. How does God use suffering in the whole narrative of Scripture? In the book of Job, our good man Job, he's awesome. God gives suffering to him because he's innocent, right? Which sounds not fair, right? You're just like, why would you do that? But it's because he's innocent and he's trying to prove to Satan that this guy is righteous and holy. In Psalm 38, God gives suffering to David, what? Because he's guilty. Interesting. In John 9, a man is born blind and the Pharisees ask Jesus, why was this man born blind? And here's what he says, so that the works of God may be real in him for the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has a thorn in his side. It's not an actual thorn in his side, otherwise he could just pop it right out, but he doesn't. Something gets dysentery, which is not ideal for lots of reasons. He prays three times that God would take it away, and yet God chooses not to. Why? Because in his weakness, his power is made perfect, and his grace is enough for Paul. In Hebrews 12, why do we suffer? Because we're his kids. Not because we're not his kids, but because we're his kids, and he wants to develop us. So right there, that's five different examples of the complex theology on how God uses suffering in our lives. So it's not just Psalm 38, but here's the downside of systematic theology, okay? So that's the upside. You can know a lot of the Bible and it's helpful. The downside is it often reduces texts like this. People who love systematic theology will look at Psalm 38 and be like, well, because of Job, it can't mean that God is giving us suffering because of our sin. Biblical theology reads each text and says, what does this say about the heart of God? 
What does this say about what it means to follow him? And so biblical theology is incredibly important. So here's the reality. Systematic theology tends to use overgeneralized statements like you're suffering always because of your sin, which is a Psalm 38 expanded over the entire Bible, or generalized statements like you're suffering never because of your sin. What biblical theology teaches us in Psalm 38 is that you could be. It makes you ask the question, is this because of my sin or is my sin making this worse? Okay, I wanna nuance here even further because I understand this is a hard text to understand. There is for sure suffering in your life that you cannot control. So this is the pastoral lens. There's suffering like a cancer diagnosis that you cannot control. People dying in your life that you love that you cannot control. Circumstances by which you were born into that you cannot control. That is true. And rarely have I concluded this exact conclusion that David is concluding. That the sin, suffering that I'm in is directly because of my sin. But here's the interesting thing as I was processing suffering in our life. Much of life is both. Much of life is understanding that some of your suffering is stuff you cannot control, but oftentimes our suffering is made worse because of our sin. I was processing kind of a season of life after COVID-19 when it hit and everyone freaked out, okay? I was one of the people who freaked out <laughs> lots, all the time. But I was processing this season of depression for about two years after COVID-19. And it was while I was doing pastoral ministry, it was while you know, all this stuff was going on, and I had about a two-year-long stretch where every day was a battle in order to be a healthy in my mind. Here's the reality. That suffering was induced by things I could not control. Isolation was something I could not control. A global pandemic, something I could not control. Racial tension in our city that uprooted trauma in my life, things I could not control. But in reflecting on that two-year period, one of the things I realized is my sin made it worse. My desire to be self-dependent, not Christ-dependent, made it worse. My anger at authorities and institution made it worse. So the reality is, when we look at the grand narrative of suffering in all of our lives, I think we can be honest and say, there are parts I could not control and parts that I played a role in. This is the path of ownership. And the question for us right now is, why is this so important for us? It's important because if you wanna live as a victor, victor in the midst of a suffering drenched world, here's what you need. You need to take ownership of what you can own. Otherwise you will blame God and blame people but never change. So what's the application for us in this section? Self-awareness is great, it's not enough, okay? You can just be super aware and like do nothing about it and your life won't change. You need more than self-awareness. You need repentance. You need to be able to say, hey Jesus, I'm in the midst of a suffering season. There's much I cannot control, but there is this that I've sinned against you. What would it look like for all of us in the midst of suffering seasons to own what we can own? Okay, so that's what we need. We need to be aware of the discipline of God. We need to repent or take ownership of our sins. But the third thing is we need good news, we need hope. We need hope. Turn with me all the way to verse 15. It says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. 
O Lord my God, who will answer? Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. Okay, here's the good news in the psalm. He hears our cries and he gives us hope. So in our suffering, he hears us. He will answer our cries and he gives us hope. And for David, it was a future Messiah. As we repent, he hears us and he gives us hope. He doesn't just hear our pain, but he gives us hope. But the ultimate, as we close, the ultimate reason why we have hope is not just that God hears our pain, not just that he gives us a future hope in David, for David in Psalm 38, but because the one who was victorious took on suffering for us. Think about this. David suffered because of his sin, but Jesus suffered because of our sin. And here's the beauty of the gospel. What David hoped for in verse 21 through 22 is what we hold on to today. Here's what David had hoped for in verse 21 through 22. For do not forsake me, O Lord. Be near to me. Make haste to help me and be my salvation. But here's what's true about you if you're a Christian redemption church. In the midst of your suffering, the hope of David is actually the promises of Jesus to us. Think about this. To the hope of do not forsake me, what did Jesus say? He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. To the hope of be not far from me, what did Jesus say? I'll be with you to the end of the age, to the hope of make haste to help me. Jesus sent us a helper who lives within us and is with us. And to the hope of my Lord, O oh Lord, my salvation, Jesus redeemed us on the cross. So what's true about David in Psalm 38 is that he had pleas of hope. But for what's true about us right now is we have promises of Jesus. And here's what that means is we can actually trust him. In seasons when you're in so much suffering that you cannot imagine a God who looks down on you and smiles upon you, when you feel the discipline of God and the arrows and the hand of his discipline, when you feel like you cannot take any steps forward, here's what's true. You can trust the promises of Jesus. Because when Jesus died and resurrected, his promises went from lip service to realities of the universe. He has come so that we can hope in him. So what do we do in response to the hope that we have, Christian? We live lives in the midst of suffering, knowing that God is disciplining us and training us. We repent and own what we can own, and we hold on to the promises of Christ that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he will be with us to the end of the age, that he has sent a helper, and that he has been our redeemer. Let's pray unto that reality. Father, thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you that in this complex theology of suffering, you didn't just stand on the sidelines and watch us suffer. You came to us. You took upon suffering in your flesh. You hung on the cross and you gave us hope. I love that what was hope for David became the promise to us. I love the perfection of the promises of Christ, that we do not live as people who are hopeless and putting our hope in the world around us. We live as victors in Christ who have been given promises to hold, given promises to have faith in, and reminders of his grace to us in the midst of suffering. And so, Father, here we are. We raise our voices to you. 
We put our lives on the altar of your grace and we say, please help us. Help us to be people who suffer differently than the culture around us. Not people who try to get out of the suffering, but people who grow in the suffering. Help us to have a redemptive vision of the suffering in our lives. Father, your hand can feel heavy and your arrows can feel sharp, but we know and trust that all the suffering of this life is disciplining us unto knowing you more and to being made more like you. So Jesus, we pray in your mighty name.